0: Father, we do pray with those words, come thou long expected Jesus, Lord God, recognizing that in your son's first coming, it came in fulfillment of prophecy, in fulfillment of your word to that effect, Lord God, and now we await that second coming, on the day on which every knee will bow, every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, thank you that we live in the day of your church, the day in which you have called us, God, to be extending that kingdom which Christ's first arrival ushered in. Father, might we this morning, as we turn to your word, be reminded of this great privilege which is ours Father, that we might live in light of the truths that we see today so that you might be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would guard distraction from our minds. Father, might we set aside the worries that we have, the deadlines that we face. Lord, might we in this time be still and know that you are God. Lord, we pray that you would speak. Let we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, This morning we continue with our examination of Matthew's record of the promised Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the first Gospels, second chapter. So that's Matthew chapter 2. And if you were with us last week, then you'll recall how we examined the Magi's encounter with Herod, the current king of the Jews, as they sought the one who had been born the king of the Jews. And we noted the messianic distinction between these two rulers, as attested to by both the planets and the prophets. The skies proclaimed Christ's birth, as a star directed these foreign astrologers to worship him, while the prophets foretold the exact location of his entrance. Sadly, in our text, the king of kings' arrival was met with apathy and animosity rather than awe and appreciation. Animosity is Herod recognized in this child an adversary to his reign, while the religious leaders could have cared less. Christ's birth meant nothing to them because he just didn't fit their messianic model. And yet what we saw together was the truth of Christ's kingship and then our right response to him of worship, a response that's reflected as we joyfully ascribe authority and significance to Christ by means of sacrificial gifts just as were demonstrated by the Magi. Church, we continue today to worship Jesus by giving to Him those things which we so often rely upon so that we might demonstrate our dependence upon them, Him, those those Christ has given us over the material possessions that we have. And we do so sacrificially so that He might be glorified. And today we return to Matthew's account where I believe the Lord would have us to see two further gospel truths in light of the promised Christ, The first is that no one can thwart his plans. No one can thwart our God's plans. And the second is that God's purpose remains in the midst of pain. So no matter how dark your circumstances may appear, God's purpose remains. With that said, let's read our text this morning. Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 13. Matthew 2, 13, our author writes, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. May God bless the public reading of his word. As this section of the story begins, Matthew informs us that they have gone, where the they is clearly the magi, having found the Christ, delivered their gifts, and worshipped these eastern stargazers who likely came from a Persian priestly caste, depart per the admonition they received in a dream. Rather than returning to Herod, they head home by a different route. And it's following their departure That Matthew describes Joseph's visit, presumably by the same angelic messenger in a dream as well, who warns him to get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt, where he's then to stay until such time as the Lord directs him to return. And church, it's in this divine warning, coupled with its explanation, that I believe we encounter our first gospel truth this morning, and that is no one can thwart God's plans, no one can thwart God's plans. For Matthew, as we've seen thus far in his gospel, Christ's birth was God's fulfillment of his promise made through Moses to Israel that one day he, Yahweh, would send a prophet, a new Moses, who would lead a new Israel, a new chosen people, his church, to the promised land. And as Matthew considered Christ's life, he saw this prophetic pattern reflecting Israel's experiences in Egypt where Christ is the new Moses. And Herod, he likens to Pharaoh. Now, if you recall, in Israel's Exodus, the Lord sent Jacob, some of you have been studying this in Sunday school, sent Jacob and his family to Egypt in order to save them from a famine, to provide for Israel. God had already sent Joseph, who'd been a slave in Potiphar's home, but who'd risen to second in command in all of Egypt by the time of Jacob's arrival, by God's enabling. Israel was well cared for during Joseph's life. But following his death, as you know, there arose a Pharaoh who neither knew Joseph, what he'd done for Egypt, or how Israel had even come to be there in the first place. And so now, faced with Israel's growing population, Pharaoh determined to put a stop to it. Now, I'm sure you remember Pharaoh orders all of the Jewish midwives to kill every baby boy that was born in order to stem this swelling Semitic tide. For Matthew, here in our Gospel, Herod is the new pharaoh, as his response to Christ's birth reflects, along with his ordered infanticide, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But first, as it pertains to God's plans as communicated to Joseph, which mirror those of Israel in Egypt, notice the care that Matthew takes to remind his readers that God knew what was coming. God knew what was coming. Following his documentation of the angel's instructions to Joseph, Matthew very intentionally includes the angel's explanation why. Joseph's to get up in the night and, along with Mary and Jesus, flee to Egypt for or because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The tense in this sentence, church, is key as I believe it reveals God's perspective on time. God knew what Herod was going to do before Herod had even decided to do it. God knew Herod's heart, mind, his actions. He knew what Herod would say and how he would respond when he discovered that the Magi had outwitted him. And therefore, God's plan here was never in doubt, despite Herod's deadly decisions. It didn't matter how deceitful Herod had been or secretive, in his planning, God knew. Just as the king of Aram had discovered every time he had attempted to ambush Israel in the Old Testament, but failed. If you recall from that story, the king of Aram asked his courtiers, which of you is in Israel's pocket? Which of you is on Israel's side? And the Lord informed him, and his courtiers said, "Where well, none of us are. But the Lord's prophet knows everything, even the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Church, Matthew recognized that God knew everything. He knew Pharaoh's heart. So he knew how Moses or how Pharaoh would respond to Moses' request to let God's people go. He'd even told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. So that he, that's God, what he desired to occur would take place. And so Matthew desires for us, his readers here, to see the reality of God's omniscience. Once again revealed or evidenced by his protection of the promised Christ. Just as God had known Pharaoh's heart, so too here does he know Herod's heart. And friends, our God knows our hearts. He knows your hurts, disappointments, anger, frustrations. He knows your plans, your hopes, designs, your dreams. He knows what's coming in your life because he knows the plans he has for your life. No matter how unintended your circumstances may appear, how lucky or Coincidental, this isn't the picture that Scripture paints of our existence. The Bible doesn't portray life as the result of chance decisions or random interactions. Rather, as we see here in Matthew 2, God knows exactly what's coming. And He not only knows, but He acts for His ends as revealed by the fact that God warned Joseph. So God doesn't only know what will happen. Our God works to make it happen. In our text, I believe that Matthew makes this point when he includes God's directions to Joseph. In other words, Joseph doesn't pack up his family and head south just because. He abandoned Bethlehem in the dead of night in obedience to God's word. And and if this weren't conclusive evidence enough, Matthew points us as his readers then to the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son in order to demonstrate God's sovereign direction over the entire thing. And in this quote, is taken from Hosea, chapter 11 and verse 1. And there, God is reflecting on his experience of trying to raise a rebellious child, who's Israel. In that original context, the prophet Hosea's focus was on the formation of the nation of Israel as they traveled in this exodus through the wilderness, as they wandered aimlessly, all due to their disobedience. But here in his gospel, Matthew sees the promised Christ. That is this new prophet knew Israel who would share a similar testing in the desert, as you recall, Christ's temptation in the desert, but unlike the people whom Hosea lamented for because of their stubbornness, the promised Messiah wouldn't sin. So for Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised, beginning with the patriarchs, working through the Exodus, and into the kings. And his point here, I believe, is that God not only knows what's happening, or knows what's going to happen, he works to bring it to pass. Just as he led his people to Egypt and then out of Egypt, so too he promised to lead his son and therefore in fulfillment of his promises, God warns Joseph to take the child and his mother and head south. And church, what I find so comforting about this truth is the knowledge that our God isn't limited to simply knowing. He doesn't only know what will be, he works to bring it about. Now, if if all God could do was know the future, but he was incapable of influencing said future, then we'd have no reason to pray, would we? I mean, why bother God if he can't impact that which is to come? Further, what guarantees do we as his followers have if he has no control over the future? He simply knows what there is. And And I would argue none. If God had only known what Herod would do, but had been unable to do anything about it, then Joseph would never have left Bethlehem as he did. And Jesus would never have lived. But the beauty of the God of the gospel is as we've seen, as we've studied the Exodus, and now as we see here in Matthew's gospel, as he's displaying in this text, God protected Christ in the same way that he provided for Moses and the people of Israel. And he did so because he knew what was coming and he worked to bring it about despite all opposition. And this morning, if you were a follower of Christ, you've personally experienced this truth. Each and every follower of Jesus has personally experienced this truth because at one time, we were all, as Herod was, desperate to destroy the Messiah. We were all party to Christ's crucifixion. We wanted nothing to do with a king who, who might threaten our reign. In our lives, we ruled exclusively. There was no power sharing in this deal because we couldn't share. And anyone or anything that posed a threat to our throne, we attacked without mercy. We were like the Apostle Paul describes dead in our transgressions and sins. We lived to gratify our sinful natures, following its desires and thoughts, and therefore we were objects of God's wrath, and justly so, until God, who knew what was coming and worked to bring it about, made us alive in Christ Jesus. We didn't save ourselves, church. That glorious future became our present peace Because of God's grace. As Paul declares. For it is by grace. That you've been saved. Through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not works. So no one can boast. If we're God's children today. It is only because God graciously made it so. It's a reality that he foreknew. Before the creation of the world. And which he brought to pass. In accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Which he has freely given us. In the one he loves. Emmanuel the the beauty of the gospel. Is that no one. Can thwart our God's plans. And he's promised that if you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart. That God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. And he who begins this good work in you. Will carry it through to completion. On the day of Christ Jesus. The day when every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe this this morning? Matthew makes clear that no one can thwart our God's plans and that his purpose remains in the midst of pain. And I believe that this truth is conveyed for us in verses 16 through 18 where Matthew recounts Herod's reaction to the Magi's response. And we said that we would come back to this infanticide as it again, I believe, reflects Matthew's rendering of Herod in the role of Pharaoh, along with Christ as the promised Mosaic prophet. Now, as regards to this event itself, what Matthew records here in his gospel is, as one commentator observed, this is the aspect of this gospel's infancy narratives most often rejected as legendary. In other words, as as scholars have examined, critically examined the historicity of the New Testament's events, they've failed to find significant extra-biblical documentation for this atrocity. The historian who's most often referenced for first century Jewish ongoings, Josephus, makes no mention of this occurrence, fueling claims by the scholarly community that this event was simply created by the author to further assimilate Herod to Pharaoh. However, the lack of independent evidence is no more of a problem for this than virtually every other incident that we see described in the Gospels, as it neither contradicts extra-biblical sources, nor the many existing biblical accounts. So what I find interesting, however, about Matthew's inclusion of this horrific act is the prophetic reference to which he appeals and the direct manner in which he does so. If you look back in your Bibles, in that reference in verse 15, our author employs an almost passing interest in the prophet as he describes him. Verse 17, however, Matthew states explicitly what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And what was said, he then quotes, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they're no more. So, clearly Matthew's point here is to demonstrate once again the fulfillment of a messianic marker. As it seems, the women of Bethlehem grieve over their lost children in a manner likened to the women of Israel who, as we know from the story, also wept over their lost children in Egypt. Now, In both instances, the child of promised was spared. Moses, if you recall, was placed by his mother in a basket and carried on the the Nile River, Egypt's Nile River, whereas Christ is placed in his mother's arms and he's carried to Egypt's land. The similarities are glaring. However, challenges arise when you examine the text from which Matthew draws this quotation. If you were to look back to Jeremiah 31, verse 5, commentators, the ones that I consulted, they all agree, there's nothing in this Old Testament passage which provides any, any basis for linking it to the story of Jesus here, unless there were already some tradition for the killing of children to draw attention to it in the first place. Further, for those who might be familiar with their Old Testament, Ramah wasn't in Egypt. Is the place, actually, where Israel's exiles gathered prior to being taken off to Babylon, following Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. And so, while certainly there would have been children slaughtered by the Babylonian siege, that connection to Christ, as with Moses, is completely absent. And so, for this reason, most scholars believe what Matthew was referring to here in his gospel was an event tied specifically to the text of Jeremiah 31, but that was based on a prior tradition which he'd simply accepted. So it's quite possible that this is one of those texts that Jesus opened his two disciples' minds to as they walked to Emmaus following the news of his resurrection. I don't know. We can't be sure. But what we can know in defense of the veracity of Matthew's account here regards Herod's character. In his well-documented final years, Josephus records Herod's obsessive defense of his throne. And even earlier in his reign, Herod is documented as eliminating all of his predecessors, Antigonus, Hyrcanus, along with large numbers of their supporters. Eventually, the man removed all remaining members of the Hasmonean dynasty that he'd replaced, the Maccabees. He, he even killed those to whom he had been related by law. He killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, we won't comment. He killed his favorite wife, His final years, the man even killed his three elder sons for suspicion of seeking to take his throne. History records his brutality outside of his family, inside of his family. He was, even as a young man, he survived an assassination attempt and then promptly rounded up the ten conspirators and removed all of their families. The, The most telling act, thankfully one that didn't come to fruition, but the most telling act of Herod's character was his plot, to slaughter all of, Jewish, all of the Jewish leaders on the day of his death. This was his plan, because he desired for there to be genuine tears at his funeral. Thankfully, this wasn't what came to pass. And so, despite the dearth of extra-biblical support for the infanticidal event here, there's a wealth of evidence when you consider Herod's character itself. So I believe we can be certain what Matthew recorded here occurred. The question, though, that follows for us this morning as it applies to our lives is why did Matthew see in this horrible act a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy? And I believe one possible answer might be tied to the sentiments that were associated with Ramah. We said before this was where the exiles of, of Israel were lined up before being marched into Babylon. Jeremiah himself, if you recall, was one of those in that group, he, although he ends up being returned to to Judah, and they're trying to influence the remaining remnants. So it might have been that Matthew saw in Jeremiah's eventually unsuccessful efforts to to save those remaining in, in Judah, a picture of Christ's own unsuccessful ministry to his brothers and sisters in Israel. Or it might have been a connection to the prophet's eventual escape. Jeremiah was one who was taken along with the rest of the remnants to Egypt, just as Christ was carried by Joseph and Mary. I don't know. And honestly, I don't know that we can know. But the point that I am confident Matthew makes here for us this morning is that God's purpose remains in the midst of pain. As Herod attempted to eliminate the contender for his throne, he kills every baby boy in Bethlehem, two years or younger. The heartache resulting from that despicable act would have been unspeakable. And yet, church, out of this darkness shone the light of the world. So just as the weeping and mourning at Ramah would have been very real, in time it turned to rejoicing as God's people returned from Jerusalem. And friends, I I know that every single person here has experienced heartache. For some, that pain has been less intense, far less frequent than for others. But we've all experienced pain. This is the reality of life. Suffering's a given. I was talking about this with Nancy on Wednesday. You live long enough, you're going to hurt. But for so many, we don't want to hurt. And this is life's greatest challenge and for many of us, our greatest fear. We don't plan on hurting. We buy insurance against it, and yet it seems that we still experience it. But the beauty of the gospel is that God's plans remain in spite of pain. Suffering cannot extinguish the hope of the gospel. In fact, God uses the very sharpest weapon of our adversary to show us just how weak we are And how in need of a Savior. And Paul speaks to this very truth when he wrote his second letter to brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth. He reminded them of this reality. For a man who had experienced almost every form of pain imaginable, from imprisoning to flogging, to beatings to stonings, to being shipwrecked and left a night in the open sea, to attacks by bandits, to betrayals by his own countrymen, sleep deprivation, starvation, thirst, Paul had suffered. And as he wrote to his faith family, he reminded them about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. For Paul, pain was a constant companion, and yet he knew that all of this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you, by your prayers, help us. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So church, we will experience pain. And I know for many of us, this past year has been marked by it. It has been hard. Hearts have been broken and many still ache. And some have even felt, I believe as Paul expressed it here, despairing of life. What's the point? Why am I the one that's left? Who cares? I'm just, I'm just ready to be done with all of this discomfort. Hear the gospel. God's plans remain in spite of pain. Despite Herod's inhumane efforts to snuff out the light of the world. Despite his evil genius as he sought to manipulate the Magi, he did not win. And this is the hope of Christmas. This is the gospel. Darkness doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Satan doesn't win. When all seemed lost, God came. came to His own, like His own in every way. He came born of a virgin, born under the law so that He might fulfill the law. Christ submitted Himself to life on earth, and so He faced all our frustrations. He knew pain, hurt, heartache, loneliness, disappointment, anger, and fatigue. Jesus came into a world of hurt, and He healed. He opened eyes that were blind. He unstopped deaf ears he strengthened paralyzed limbs the man even raised the dead but as we know because of sin all those eyes eventually closed didn't they all those ears stopped back up limbs returned to lifelessness and death reigned because our world is under a curse and awaiting the day on which our savior will return do you know this jesus the promised Messiah who as we're seeing together Matthew is showing us came in the line of David who as the promised prophet like Moses would speak God's words to us. Christmas is so much more than our culture has made it and we often acknowledge it. Emmanuel the promised Christ came to set us free. He came to live and to die. So so often our holiday celebrations we leave out all mention of death. We fixate on life and and new birth as it's reflected in babies and such and that's that's okay but but I fear that in so doing we miss the gospel because there can be no life without death there can be no joy without pain if we're to follow Christ then we have to take up a cross and if you're here this morning and you've never admitted that you're a sinner that you've never confessed your sin to God and asked for His forgiveness, if you've never openly, publicly declared your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, then I would urge you to do that today. You know, I'm sure that many of us this morning have heard this appeal before. Many, I know, have responded in faith and repented, believed. Others may have given it thought, but haven't responded. And there may be others this morning for whom this is all brand new. As we close, I'm going to pray As we always do. And I'm going to pray that God has graciously opened eyes to see the glory of the gospel. That none can thwart our God's plans. As he alone saves and he saves by his grace through faith in Jesus. And I'm also going to pray that God would strengthen us today. In light of the gospel that we might remember his purposes remain. Even in the midst of pain. And if you have any questions about what we've seen together this morning in Matthew's gospel or as regards to the significance of the season, and as we sing, please find me down front. Let's let's talk. Don't Don't leave this morning without finding answers to your questions because the promised Christ, whose birth changed our world's calendar forever, can change your life. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, your gospel cannot be stopped Because you cannot be stopped. None can thwart our God's plans. Father, and your plans remain despite the reality of pain. And we see these beautiful principles in your word. And Lord, this morning as we have heard this gospel, Father, many of us have responded. In faith, we have confessed that we are broken and that the reality of our experiences in light of your word have led us to acknowledge our need for something bigger, greater than ourselves to save us and to give our lives purpose and meaning. And that's you. Father, for others of us, we've heard it, but we've not responded. It has fit into our cultural worldview. Father, it may have impacted our year's activities with events in. It's different seasons that are tied to church activity. But it hasn't changed our lives. And were we to be asked, we could answer with the right questions and answers. But Father, it doesn't impact how we live. Father, for others, it might be the first time we've heard or genuinely considered what this means for me. Lord, we don't preach... To convince minds and hearts. For we can't. Only you can. Only you change hearts and minds. And Father I pray that this morning you would. Father that you would help us to see again. The beauty of your gospel. Father that how easily we may be distracted in this season. Of all the stuff that surrounds. To forget why Jesus came. That this is a celebration of the gospel, the coming of the one who would save us from sin. And Lord, as Emily sang for us earlier, we sing in our hearts, Come, thou long expected Jesus. Come for the second time. Lord, I pray that if there are any who have no confidence in that second coming, of what they would say, Or how they would respond. That Lord God this morning you have led by your grace to a place of willingness to admit sin. And to ask for your forgiveness. And that you save them. Lord thank you that your your word promises. That if we confess and we believe that you do what you've promised to do. And so we trust that you will for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen.